I think it's very fitting um, that we're in this room here that uh, if you look above, we have our contemplating angels reading books um, to, to put on this event action versus contemplation, um, why an ancient debate still matters, a symposium around um, a fantastic book uh, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, I don't think it's just fitting in terms of architecture though, um, but because I do think uh, that students um, and faculty and professors embody so well the challenge uh, that's presented um, by both these dispositions, these orientations of action or contemplation. Um, I certainly can, uh, if I had time, uh, tallying up the number of emails that I had to send today, I uh, could tell you that my life leans a little more towards the Vita Activa at the moment. Um, and reading this has helped sort of spark more yearnings and desires um, for that contemplative life, um, the slowness of that life. And unfortunately, um, what you both gather from the book and talking to professors, it seems like that tension doesn't disappear um, as one graduates or as one gets um, stuck into the tenure track route, um, or as one gets tenure, um, it seems that this sort of struggle always persists. Um, this book symposium today is presented by us, the Lumen Christi Institute, um, but I want to call particular attention to our co-sponsors, um, the English department here at the University of Chicago, um, the seminary co-op bookstore, which is selling the book um, right outside, so you can, um, after the event today, um, pick up the text. Uh, the University of Chicago Press, uh, who played an instrumental role in us bringing this symposium together today. Um, the Our Sunday Visitor Institute, who have helped generously underwrite the event today. And the Theology Club at the Divinity School. Um, I am going to introduce our four um, speakers uh, who are actually going to be presenting in reverse order from um, what I present. So at the end of the table, um, Father Peter Funk um, is the prior of the Monastery of the Holy Cross, a contemplative Benedictine monastery in the south side neighborhood of Bridgeport. Father Peter received his BA in music from the University of Chicago. After graduating, he was a choral conductor at St. Thomas the Apostle Parish in the University of Chicago. He entered monastic life in 1997. Father Peter received a master's degree in theology at St. John's School of Theology in Collegeville, Minnesota, where he majored in scripture. In 2012, he helped to found the, the choir Scola Laudis, whose mission is to reintroduce the Catholic tradition of polyphony at the monastery's celebration of Vespers. Father Peter has composed numerous motets and four a cappella settings of the Mass. And if you've never been to um, the high, uh, the Solemn Vespers where Scola Laudis um, performs at, I highly recommend it to you. Um, it's a, a fantastic experience. And if you want to continue in the active life, uh, Maria's Community Bar, one of Chicago's best bars, is just next door to the monastery. Um, I don't know how, how often the monks frequent there, um, but at least uh, the parishioners could um, go there after. Uh, Lisa Ruddick is Associate Professor of English at the University of Chicago. She holds a PhD from Harvard University and has taught at the University of Chicago since 1981. Her teaching and research focus on, uh, focuses on modern British fiction, literature, and psychoanalysis, and poetry and poetics and more specifically the question of the feeling of aliveness 
especially among scholars in the humanities. She is author of numerous scholarly works, including Reading Gertrude Stein, Body Text Gnosis. Jennifer Summit, one of the authors of the book that we're here to discuss today, is Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs at San Francisco State University. She holds a PhD from Johns Hopkins University and was previously Professor of English at Stanford University. She's author of numerous scholarly articles and two books, Memories Library, Medieval Books in Early Modern England, and Lost Property, The Woman, the Woman Writer and English Literary History, 1380 to 1589. Most recently, she has co-authored with Blakely Vermeule, Action versus Contemplation, Why an Ancient Debate Still Matters. Blakey Vermeule is a professor of English at Stanford University. She holds a PhD from UC Berkeley and a BA from Yale. Her research interests are neuroaesthetics, cognitive and evolutionary approaches to art, philosophy and literature, British literature from 1660 to 1820, post-colonial fiction, satire, and the history of the novel. She is author of The Party of Humanity, writing moral psychology in 18th century Britain, and Why Do We Care About Literary Characters, 2009, both from the John Hopkins University Press. She is writing a book about what mind science, what mind science has discovered about the unconscious. Um, in terms of our order today, um, we're going to begin with both of our authors um, to give different takes from the book. Um, it'll be followed then by both of our respondents, um, Lisa and Father Peter. We'll then open up for a conversation uh, between the panelists, allowing uh, a chance for, particularly for our authors to respond. And then we'll open to a Q&A period um, for which we have a mic. Um, so I will ask um, that I'll call upon you and you'll wait for the mic to come. So please join me in uh, welcoming to the stage Blakey Vermeule. Thank you so much for that Oops. very kind introduction. Um, and, and thank you so much to the Lumen Christi Institute for arranging this wonderful event. It's such a joy to be here. I'm especially grateful to Thomas Levergood and Mark Franzen for all of their help in the arrangements, uh, and especially and infinitely to Alan Thomas for bringing this book uh, into existence. It was a really a, a group effort, uh, and he was so wonderful in shepherding it through um, its, its various stages uh, of, of the press. Maybe this is a particular kind of academic malady, but one can spend a, a decade and more thinking about a topic and have an odd sense of its vastness and indeed urgency, but ever less clarity about its definite edges and contours. So I'm especially grateful to all of you for coming today to help us think through what the book and it's what the topic of this book means to you. I'm going to spend some time today talking about the institution that I know the best, Stanford University. I don't want to seem parochial, but this is the habitus that I know 
intimately well. Emerson wrote that the ocean has no character until it is seen against the shore. And for me, it just so happens that Stanford and the culture that it spawned and sits in the middle of is, is the shore that delimits some of the, the vastness of this particular question. But I will be very interested to hear your take on it. This book began its life as a freshman lecture class that we first taught in 2007 and 2008. Jennifer proposed the idea of the class to me. She came to me and she said, it was a, I thought it was an inspired idea, that we could, by teaching a, a sort of ancient debate that we were both very, very interested in, that we could help orient freshman students at Stanford to some of the practical and existential dilemmas that they were facing by mapping for them the wider human bay uh, in which they were swimming. We could ask them to contemplate some of the, the sources of value and meaning uh, in, in their own lives. But it is one thing to ask students to know something of the contours of the wider bay that they are swimming in, and quite another to do so when the planet underneath them is beginning to tilt on its axis. For right when we started teaching this class, um, the financial crisis hit, uh, it, and it hit hard. Enrollments across the humanities began to plummet, and not just the humanities, but the basic, what I call the sort of core disciplines uh, of the university, including fundamental sciences. So I, at, at Stanford, those core disciplines are actually uh, situated on the, the inner quad. So what I think of as the sort of the inner quad disciplines, enrollments began to leach away from those uh, disciplines in favor of majors that led much more easily and readily into jobs with uh, higher starting salaries. So I now gather from talking to students that um, th these are, are kids who have been uh, raised up from early childhood to be excellent at competing at things. And when they get to Stanford, the, the next thing that they begin to sort of compete over is who's gonna get the highest starting salary kind of out of the gate. So this is kind of the, the of course, the, the irony of this, um, this, this system is that it that never ends. Uh, it just the, the, um, uh, the hurdle keeps um, moving further away. I, I'm actually occasionally reminded of um, this excellent joke by uh, Robert Sapolsky, my Stanford colleague. Um, he's a, an eminent neuroscientist he has this to say about uh, the frontal cortex. He says, and, and what is the frontal cortex good for? Emotional regulation, gratification postponement, executive decision-making, long-term planning. We study hard in high school to get admitted to a top college, to get into grad school, to get a good job, to get into the nursing home of our choice. <laughs> so that's, um, th that's in effect the, the, the conditions uh, in, in which this book was spawned. I am now uh, chair of the Stanford English Department, a position that Jennifer has also held. The Stanford English Department is an institution that I really dearly love, uh, to the extent that one can say that about an institution. It has been my home for 15 years, and I feel genuinely happy when I get to work every morning. So I'm enormously grateful for that. Having said that, I, I sometimes joke that teaching the humanities at Stanford, and many of you some of you I see were, were PhD students there. 
uh, is a little bit like teaching scuba diving in the Gobi Desert. Stanford's dominance in engineering and medicine is so unparalleled, and the university sits at the epicenter of a, a real gold rush. 60% of Stanford undergraduates are now majoring in computer science, and some even larger percentage than that are majoring in the STEM fields, and especially in engineering. So we, in the humanities, have been trying to find ways to adapt um, really since 2008. I, I tend to compile stacks of old notebooks, and pretty much every time I look into one of my old notebooks or on a legal pad, I find pages of meeting notes uh, that are the same. Uh, they're all about uh, the curriculum, enrollments, what kinds of courses can we teach, and so forth that will attract majors. I, I feel like I've been going to the same meeting for 10 years, uh, but the truth is that uh, computer science is wildly popular, and there's such a strong global demand that many high schools, including in the Bay Area, are really having trouble finding people to teach it uh, because the tech firms up the road are paying such large, large premiums for uh, talented software engineers. In my discipline, we used to be able to count on a very large population of what I call immersive readers from babyhood. These are people, and I'm sure many of you in the room were such, uh, who read obsessively and fanatically from very early on in your lives. This population has now dwindled, I think. Um, though I have to say that the tech and visual skills that my students bring to the classroom nowadays really astonish me. Uh, those of you who, ha who have teenagers will know what I am talking about. To me, the things that students can do just with their smartphones seems like wizardry. And I'm certainly not going to insist that my mainly literary habitus is somehow superior to what I call their young people tricks, um, young people magic. But even as the tide surges and pulses around us, I think that we can all hear alarm bells sounding not only in Silicon Valley, but across the wider culture. It is incredibly hard for those of us, uh, even with stable jobs and stable careers and stable home lives, to adapt so quickly to the changing conditions that seem to be not of our own making. So Stanford is currently undergoing a long-range planning process, which began as a very as enormous su suggestion box. I think there were nearly 3,000 suggestions from across the university of what the university needs to do to improve itself. Uh, and what sorts of problems it needs to solve. Most of the research areas that have emerged from this are in the STEM fields, uh, and specifically in computers. How can we mitigate the coming effects of artificial intelligence? How can we navigate the digital future? But there is one uh, design team or research group that is specifically devoted uh, to, um, to humanistic enterprises, and it is called the changing human experience. And the basic idea is that human, the human experience has changed more in the past 100 years than at any point uh, in the history of human life, and the pace of acceleration is only likely uh, to increase. So how can we, in some sense, orient ourselves and orient our students um, to a, a way of grounding themselves uh, against these, these conditions, which feel, on, on so many grounds, um, really startling? I think. Um, so Jennifer and I uh, took, 
took the view that we would uh, introduce our students to this very uh, rich, ancient tradition uh, in the West, a tradition that for me, and I believe also for Jennifer, begins at least notionally with Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics. So if you go back and you look at the Nicomachean Ethics, especially uh, book six, you can see that Aristotle, I, I mean, these weren't, he didn't write these uh, ethics, they were, they were notes. Um, but th there's a sense that there's a, just a real intensity to the belief that contemplation is the highest form of rationality and that reason is the way for a person to order her or himself, uh, that a contemplative life is the most ordered and the most perfect. When you read these fragments, these notes, you, you can see that uh, his words practically shimmer with pleasure as though he has found an amazing secret, an amazing treasure, and he wants very, very urgently to share it. Uh, in the sense, I think, that he means it, con contemplation is not a single practice or an action, but is a lifelong project of intense self-discipline. I have met many, many people who stumble onto the Aristotelian path after much sojourning in the wilderness. I tend to meet them in middle age. Some of them seem to have wandered out bewildered from the brush. Obviously, nothing in our culture encourages this sort of Aristotelian uh, moral strenuousness, although it is perhaps worth noting that so many different traditions, uh, so many different strands of, of uh, Christianity, um, of, uh, of non-Western religions, but in the West, even of things like psychoanalysis, really also see the, the task of self-ordering as, as a work of a lifetime in, in the form that I'm most familiar with it, and I guess I should be upfront about this here uh, at an event sponsored by Lumen Christi, the tradition of moral strenuousness, and this comes up in the book, uh, that, that we put the students in touch with really comes from a, a mainly a, a group of Protestant writers, uh, John Milton, George Eliot, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Herman Melville, and Annie Dillard, although she was uh, in fact a Catholic for a while. I want to make one more point, which is that I'm often asked um, how sort of personally uh, in my own life um, I have to balance uh, the active and the contemplative aspects of life. Um, how do you sort of approach this dilemma from a personal point of view? We, we know, um, all of us uh, who, who live um, in, the, in the contemporary world, that our culture has a profound, almost worshipful bias in favor of action, often pointless action. Uh, this bias, as you all know, is the stuff of much satire, but I tend to find it very devitalizing. I uh, am a longtime contemplative. My daily practice includes ample amounts of meditation and introspection. I try often without success to bring a wider awareness to every situation and interaction that I'm involved with. But of course, conflicts arise all the time in the course of human relationships. And I find that the contemplative parts of my life 
helped me to bring a larger awareness to those conflicts. And the larger my awareness can be, the less engaged I am often in the urgent drama of the moment, the less I feel that I have to try to solve things or fix things, even as chair, that is true. Um, I, I have a friend who's actually sitting in the audience uh, today who once worked as a, an environmental engineer. I hope I won't embarrass you by, um, since you're here. Um, she, she taught me the following slogan from her own work, which is, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. Do you remember this? Uh, whenever I have a personal or situational conflict, I often think of this slogan, and I find that the best diluting agents are time, patience, and infinitely kindness. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Well, in addition to echoing the thanks that Blakey offered to Lumen Christie and, and, and certainly to our magnificent editor, Alan Thomas, um, I, I also want to acknowledge with, with immense and heartfelt gratitude Blakey herself because um, this is a work that came out of a conversation and I learned and grew so much as a, as a result of it. Um, so my perspective um, is somewhat different from, from Blakey, although we, um, we traveled along parallel paths. For me, the idea, the seed of the idea for this project emerged at a time when I was seeking a new direction in my career. Um, I had finished a book about libraries and um, I was fortunate to have Alan Thomas as, as the, the editor of that book. And that was a book where I spent a lot of time in libraries, actually researching libraries, and I really got to um, feed my introspective self to um, complete fullness, I'll say. When I came to the end of that book, I realized I did not want to spend the rest of my life in libraries. Um, I had had two children while in the process of finishing that book. I can tell you much about the nursing facilities in the greatest libraries in Europe. <laughs> um, but I knew that that was something that I did, not, I did not want to repeat. I had also recently been promoted to full professor and I began serving as chair of my department, the same department that is fortunate to have Blakey as, as its chair. And I found the work, you know, when you're, when you're an academic and you become, uh, you take on one of these administrative jobs, your colleagues always offer you condolences because you're, you're leaving the uh, joy of the contemplative life for the Vita Activa, which um, the monastic tradition always said you should only do with weeping and gnashing of teeth to leave contemplative, contemplative life. To, to my complete surprise, I enjoyed it and I found it so fulfilling um, far more than I had been bracing myself for. And so I became very interested in that, and in particular from that, in the question of the active life and the contemplative life. 
Um, in part, for me, this was a way of addressing the conflict that I was experiencing between the life of the professor, which a tenured professor at a well-resourced institution is the closest to a protected contemplative life than I think modernity affords us now, but also the, the conflict between that protected space and the life of an administrator to which I found myself drawn. My mode is historical. I'm trained as a medievalist, and um, so I wanted to explore the deep context of that um, of that split. And I'll say, you know, the medieval history of this debate shines a shines a different light on it. One thing I'll say, Michael, um, these angel these contemplative angels above us. Um, and Mark will know this, these were, this style was actually created in 15th century wall churches um, because the angel roofs were a way for churches and their benefactors to advertise their wealth. And so you find them in wool producing towns in Northern England and they would outcompete each other to put more and more angels on the, on the roofs. So in a sense it is, they are magnificently contemplative, but they are also redempt, a de redemption of a highly active life in their community. Now the Middle Ages also gives us some of the great contemplative works of the tradition. Um, the Cloud of Unknowing continues to be read as a magnificent work of contemplation. Um, also uh, Julian of Norwich, to whom I find myself constantly returning, um, both as a scholar and also as a, as, a, as a lay contemplative, but also Piers Plowman, which is a work that really grapples with the conflict of where do we do good in the world? Where do we do most good? Is it through the work of contemplation or is it through our actions? And what does good action look like? Um, so the Middle Ages gave me a very rich vein to mine on this question. Um, now Hannah Arendt, who's the greatest writer and thinker on this question and also on so many more, has a thesis which is that the active and the contemplative life, the debate between or the tension between the active and contemplative life fundamentally shifted character in modernity. According to Arendt, in the Middle Ages, contemplation was uh, preeminent and was unquestionably the higher value of the two. Whereas for Arendt in modernity, the two, the priority of the terms was switched. And so the active life became the more valued. The contemplative life was debased to the point where it dropped out, according to, to Arendt, as an option. And as a result, she says, the active life was impoverished because both action and contemplation drew their meaning from one another. When contemplation was dropped out and action was lifted up as preeminent, it became stripped, according to Arendt, of meaning. Um, and she calls um, action, actually I love the, the term that Blakey used, pointless action. Um, she talks about the, the danger of human agency deprived of meaning um, and what that looks like. Well, when I looked around, and I still, I continue to live in Silicon Valley, I saw this all the time um, in a stress 
ep epidemic amongst our young as well as amongst our not so young. Whereas uh, this uh, achievement machine, again, this is, a, I think, a term that I'm, I'm about to steal from Blakey and will continue to, um, but also in the way that disciplines like the humanities were talked about. I grew up in Silicon Valley and I used to, I went to a liberal arts college, but I used to time how long I had to be off the plane before somebody said, English, what are you gonna do with that? So this instrumentalization of the disciplines was uh, so prevalent and uh, at the time that I was noticing it and, and has only continued to be more so. Um, but I'll also say that my own experience as department chair told me something, showed me another sign of action, another side of action. Um, in the active life, the vita activa of department chair that I experienced, I came to love the work, truly love the work, not only for the satisfaction of getting things done, which is deeply satisfying, but also for what could only be called spiritual reasons, in the way that E.F. Schumacher, um, a, a, an author we engage, calls good work, which is the work that by devoting yourself to a higher purpose, it requires you to subsume the ego. And um, in the process, you're constantly confronting the challenge of doing the right thing. You don't have to be in one of these jobs very long before you realize that you are called to do the right thing because when you don't, it will always have negative consequences. Now, if you have negative consequences for doing the right thing, it's much easier to defend it. But the other way, is an impossible situation, right? So even for, even those who are not drawn to um, ethical self-reflection will find in these work, in the work of administration, that doing the right thing is something you're called on to do constantly. Um, and I found that very, very satisfying um, from an ethical but also from a spiritual sense. I was also really drawn to the Augustinian um, um, sense of caritas that I really felt in my work as chair, like Blakey, working on behalf of a group of people I deeply loved. And for Augustine, caritas is putting love into action, which is, which is very much um, the way that I, I came to experience my work. So as I looked into the question further, I, I started to find counter stories to Arendt's narrative. Not, not to say that I disagreed with Arendt because actually I think that she captures a trajectory that perfectly fits her moment in the mid 20th century. But what I was learning also told me that where we are now at the beginning of the 21st really represents a shift in the history of this debate or this tension between the active life and the contemplative life. And that became very interesting to me. So I started to find counter stories in academic treatments. Um, Paul Mason's Post-Capitalism is a, is a book that, that became very meaningful to me. And he says, in an information age, the relationship of thought and action changes. And I think it does in a way that thought becomes a form of action and action can become a form of thought. That fundamental split that forms the basis of the action contemplation tension is really uh, complicated in, in our own period. 
I also became very interested in the stories that we tell about the active life and the contemplative life. And one that, that, that repeats in the book is the retelling of the, the fable, The Ant and the Grasshopper, which is one of the ones that we grew up with to tell us about the work versus leisure. And as young Americans, we learn maybe that work is, it's better to put off leisure for the sake of work. But as this story became retold, it also came to take on different nuances. For Disney, um, the Ant and the Grasshopper became a way of talking about leisure redeemed as a form of work. Um, it, and if anyone has seen the Disney short, if not, I, I, I recommend it on uh, YouTube. Um, the grasshopper is not kicked out to die in the cold, as he is in the classical and medieval versions, but instead he's invited in to sing for his supper. You know, in a sense, creating an allegory of the entertainment industry that Disney was launching at the time. Um, the latest uh, tele retelling of this story is Pixar's Bugs, A Bug's Life, which tells a very different version of the story. Um, not as work versus leisure, but as meaningful work versus meaningless work. And how meaningful work in, I can see you all searching your memories, and I hope that this is gonna send you back to revisit it again. So the, the ant who is stuck in a paradigm of meaningless drudge work is able to redeem both his work and the work of his community by infusing it with creativity and imagination in a way that I read as, a, as an allegory of Steve Jobs' time in Pixar, but then also uh, the ad campaign that he brought into Apple when he returned to it, uh, making a difference, um, um, which is the uh, slogan of the little ant in a bug's life. So this, all of this told me that Arendt's history needed to be updated to tell the story of our age. That while we frequently experience action and contemplation as two irreconcilable poles, there were also counter stories that I really wanted to explore and explore with a very smart interlocutor that told a different story about how action and contemplation are interoperative, are integrated, and energize one another. So I asked Blakey to explore this with me in a class because I like her and admire her as a stimulating thought partner, you'll see why, but also because she and I are so very different. Um, Blakey came to this as a student of pragmatism. I came to it as a study, as a student of the contemplative tradition. Um, it's interesting to me that we never talked actually about the issue of religious faith um, because in a lot of ways that is the undercurrent of, of this book and I think Lumen Christie's invitation really recognizes that. But what was particularly interesting was how to me over the four years that we taught the class and then after that wrote the book, our lives took very different paths. Um, Blakey became very involved in an active, well, I'll say, uh, contemplative practice. I left the contemplative confines of Stanford to become a full-on administrator at San Francisco State, where I'm now provost. The work that I'm doing now comes out of um, this experience, and it's focusing on the California Master Plan 
But it's really um, um, rooted in a sentence that I was interested to find in the book when I reread it in preparation for this event, which is that the right to contemplation is unevenly distributed, and with it, the right to an education that allows for reflection, self-knowledge, and personal growth. Um, this is something that is built into the California Master Plan, which created the University of California and the California State University system, um, and I'm a part of the latter. The University of California was meant to provide liberal education for the leaders and managers. California State University was meant to provide occupational education for the workers. So there was a split built into our two systems between liberal education and occupational education that is, I think, deeply problematic for, certainly for our students, but also for capturing the reality of our workforce, which is no longer tiered in the same way. Um, for my thinking, the greatest, um, the greatest scholar on this question is John Dewey, the great John Dewey, and I'm delighted to be at uh, University of Chicago to be able to invoke his name, because of course for Dewey, the point of education is to integrate the liberal and the occupational educations, thinking and doing, and, and that was very much his goal, and it continues to be mine in, in my, current, my, my current role. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here, for continuing the conversation, and I very much look forward to continuing it with, with this company. Well, I want to thank Blakey and Jennifer for those fascinating presentations and also for your book, which is just a fantastic and brave and profound, I would use the word intervention in the current conversation on uh, the place of the humanities, both within uh, the academy generally and within the project of a well-lived life. Um, for those of you who don't know the field of English well, or who do know the field of English well and who might disagree with me, I would say that some of the terms that, uh, that both Blakey and Jennifer used in their presentations, which are also crucial to their book, are brave terms to be foregrounding within the setting of an academic humanistic environment. For example, Blakey talked about students grounding themselves. Uh, the, Dominant theories in the field of English for the last 30 years have put into question the idea that one can ground oneself in oneself, that there is some inner core, uh, or there's such a thing as centered selfhood. That's taken to be a Christian, Western, and or bourgeois conception of subjectivity. Uh, also, the idea of moral strenuousness, that's associated with Protestant ideology, and therefore it's um, uh, 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 connected ultimately with imperialism, capitalism, um, and the self-centeredness, which is very arguably a, a, a elevated as a principle in modern uh, late capitalist life. Also, uh, Blake used the phrase self-ordering. 
Um, I, uh, a piece that I wrote three years ago that was read by a lot of fellow academics and created a lot of uh, positive discussion included many, many examples of scholarship where the idea of organized selfhood is, is, um, is disintegrated, is theoretically disintegrated. The most sophisticated theories of our time supposedly throw into question any notion of ordering the self according to some higher principles outside of the self. So for some examples, uh, some of the esteem theories over the last three decades have interpreted conscious, conscience as a mere effect of our social conditioning. I'll just give a few examples. Um, uh, I have been accused sometimes of cherry picking, but in fact, uh, 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 I see these, the cherries are just the garden. Um, or to put it another way, if somebody's trying to grow blueberries in this uh, field, uh, where there's all these cherry trees, somebody tries, is, somebody is making a statement on behalf of conscience, self-ordering, or moral strenuousness, they dutifully cite all the postmodern theories that uh, are, that are uh, ranged on the other side. So you can do it, but you're fighting. You have to be very, very gifted and uh, have a lot of patience for uh, an erudition. Uh, and you arm yourself by saying, I know everybody's going to say that this is a naive and bourgeois understanding of subjectivity, but here I go. Um, so it can be done, uh, but, uh, but those who talk about what another article calls the sewn together subject, don't, they don't have to say, but of course, Christians or contemplatives will, or uh, um, capitalists will think that I'm arguing on the, saying something, saying something uh, naive. Uh, so th th this article on conscience, um, it's an article on melancholy in Victorian poetry. And I don't say authors as I go, because it's really not about people. It's about a whole complex of thought that everybody either has to bow to or dissent from. But there's a default set of positions in the field of, um, of uh, literary studies. and. I think what's happening is a kind of groupthink where we have reflection without contemplation. And Jennifer, your thoughts were so dead on about this, and both of you in the book, but you're, you really said some fascinating things about thinking that's for productivity uh, and to be accepted, but without a deeper set of reflections about, is this really true to my experience of life? So this article, so, um, uh, in this article on Victorian poetry, the author writes, for my purposes, it is important to stress that Foucault's model, and for non-academics, Foucault, Michel Foucault is one of the main influential theorists of the, since the late 1970s in the field of English. A very important theorist, had great insights, but also led to certain kinds of cliches that have distorted the thought of the mind in the humanities. For my purposes, it is important to stress that Foucault's model of character formation by disciplinary surveillance, that means that there is a set of uh, psychiatric and um, religious and legal institutions that are observing you and you learn to observe yourself from the inside, um, may be seen as a social equivalent of the psychic disciplining of the ego by the superego. So discipline that 
the lake used in a positive sense is actually muscled out and seen only in this most negative sense in terms of what a psychoanalyst would call a punitive superego or a sadistic superego, but that's not the only form of conscience available to humanity. But in this article, it's just an example of a really pervasive pattern in my field. The good version of a disciplining conscience the, where you discipline yourself according to some moral, deeply felt moral principles, is the good version is collapsed into its evil twin, which is the horrible ideals imprinted on you by a culture that wants to sap your energy and constrain your thoughts. Um, uh, so this, uh, the author goes on to argue the superego or conscience is the psychic medium that instantiates the, moral, instantiates the moral policing of the social order. Another article talks just offhand as if this were an ordinary thought to offer in an article. Uh, it mentions our current scholarly malaise with claims of true self-revelation. I would argue against this that the malaise in English of which many of us have spoken in different articles on the stale feel of a lot of literary scholarship, that actually our malaise is due to the fact that we have such inhibitions about talking about and thinking about true self-revelation and the sharing of an authentic self with another. The same article uh, contains the, a footnote that says, I reserve inwardness meaning the term inwardness, for an essentialist sense of selfhood as possessing deep recesses. Um, uh, those of you who do are close to the field will hear all the, what I would call, I mean, you may not agree, but there's a kind of sneering in here. Um, of course, deep recesses are part of a uh, Christian or uh, Wordsworthian, romantic notion of subjectivity that's been shown to be essentially um, uh, either, either naive or pernicious. We don't do, uh, some colleagues do a good job of this and others don't, and I hope I do a good job of it, uh, but I'm not the best. I have some colleagues who do a fantastic job of this essential thing, which is when training graduate students in particular, to encourage students to go home with the theory they've been assigned and ask themselves, in my heart of hearts, do I believe this theory to be true? In my heart of hearts, what do I think of a person without consistency, without consistent moral principles? In my heart of hearts, what do I think of a person without inwardness? What do I think of somebody without conscience? If I were thinking of dating somebody, who was without those things, would I feel confident that this was a place to go forward? And if not, then where do I turn? Why don't we all, the professor would say, why don't we all talk about this in class? Deep down, do you feel that if you believe these theory, this theory that was assigned today, you'll become a better person? Your life will be truer or more authentic, more real or more valid? And what this means is that we have bifurcated thinking and reflection. And what I found, and I, I feel, I will say, a deep kinship with Jennifer and Blakey, because in my experience, it was the practice 
of Buddhist meditation that really dislodged me from any feeling of obedience to the intellectual and conceptual norms dominating my, my field. Uh, uh, which is not to say that you can't have a really vital conceptual life and even vitalized theories at the same time also that they're coming from your own self-grounding in your principled self. And none of this, by the way, is to say that there, we all have an essential self that's the same throughout life. That's one of the, um, one of the uh, forms of dichotomized thinking that make people hesitate to think you're going to ground yourself in yourself because then you're embodying the notion of the Cartesian ego, and that's another, uh, uh, another fallacy of the profession. So what happened to, make, to create this split? Uh, it's par partly, as Jennifer suggested in the con connection with Silicon Valley, it's partly that we live in a very competitive environment and the academic humanities are under siege economically and, and institutionally. And so it's really hard to get a job at all, with a, a tenure-track job, if you have a PhD. So people are very, very concerned with the correct form of self-branding. And this means that also the more uh, uh, strikingly your ideas conform and extend the going theories, the better you look. So the concepts sometimes take precedence over the inherent value to the author of what he or she is saying. and this happens in Buddhist communities as well. I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I would guess it happened within medieval scholasticism, that the thinking, can, even in, among communities of contemplatives, the thinking can get so encrusted with competition that people actually are using their thoughts as products rather than really pausing and thinking, in my heart of hearts, do I believe this? Uh, so we get then also within the training, in order to prepare students for the job market, we bombard them with theories. This is the experience of maybe 70 people in different PhD programs across the country whom I interviewed for purposes of a, a book I'm working on. Um, some, many were happy and many were very unhappy with uh, the, their training in the, fields, uh, uh, the uh, field of literary studies in different literature departments. But um, many of them said uh, that, that the bombardment with theoretical models doesn't give them the space to step back and take ownership of the theories and feel a sense of that one theory is viscerally right for them. Um, and uh, as one master's student said in my department, in, in, in the humanities at the University of Chicago, my, my, my MA year was a kind of boot camp in which you had nine months to learn you had no, no self. And what, this, what happens is then what is called in uh, moral psychology, moral heuristics start to take the place of your ethical awareness that something is right or wrong. So how do we get out from this? Um, it's a, I think uh, one thing is, uh, at the end of my book in progress, I just say for people to stop lying would be very helpful. And what this means is for people with tenure to actually sacrifice a little bit of income, to sacrifice some invitations in order to say what you think is true. If everybody with tenure who agreed with some of, who, who, who resonated with some of the ideas that Blakey 
and Jennifer have articulated in today's presentations uh, uh, and wanted to make some kind of inquiry into whether moral strenuousness has any place in uh, higher learning. If, if everybody just came out of their shells and said this, it would change the conversation greatly. I think that's the main thing, uh, just small acts of courageous thought. Um, and if people also would say, that sounds like a cliche when they're thinking of hiring somebody. We do, we do that sometimes, and actually there are filters that I would say my department uses to screen out purely uh, cliched or even, as I would say, brutalized thinking where you're just um, robotically uh, repeating and extending the, um, the cliches of the moment. And then personally, I have found that contemplative practice has been the only way. I was struck when you described Aristotle as describing contemplation as this great treasure he had discovered. Um, a conversation with people you love, um, falling in love and having a mate whom you share your heart with, that can help. Psychotherapy helps enormously. Uh, for, for me, the, 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 the treasure that really uh, unlocks the um, whatever, unlocked what was chaining me to a system in which I thought that if I said, uh, the, the, the meditation unlocked me from a system where I thought I would be profoundly criticized and maybe even wrong for saying some of the things that my conscience and my heart told me was right. Um, uh, and yet, as both of you pointed out, contemporary life rushes us onward. Uh, so another thing besides stopping lying is doing less. Just doing less. Um, you might notice a bruise on my chin. I was so busy thinking about the next thing that I slipped on the ice walking my dog. And I thought to myself, should I do the things I'm trying to do and have a dog? You know, I can't walk the dog well. I got to walk her well. But why not think about not having a dog? Well, I can't do without a dog. But so I probably will always have a dog. But there are other things. Being shiny. Why do I have to be shiny? Or whatever, in whatever domain you're in. You make less money and people don't smile at you as much. But actually, that's a very valid choice uh, to make. And I've learned greatly from friends in my life who have made that choice. Well, thank you so much. And again, thank you both for your wonderful book. I'd like first to uh, welcome our guests from uh, California to Chicago winter <laughs> and, um, and thank them for the great book. I really enjoyed it and I'm so pleased to see this discussion, um, see it on the, the front table at the co-op, etc. Um, I'm assuming I'm speaking here today because I actually come from a contemplative community. There aren't very many of us around. Um, let me tell you what I did this morning. I, I baked muffins and uh, otherwise helped with breakfast for our guests. Uh, I went shopping and I ran a choir practice for our singers. 
so that's what the contemplative life is like behind the doors. Uh, but I will say, I, I always thought these angels actually were singing from their choir books rather than reading. I, I could be wrong. But again, that says something about my understanding of what contemplation is. Uh, it often looks like a celebration. Uh, it looks like singing, uh, singing God's praises, for example, which we do a lot of in our monastery. Uh, this topic on the relationship between the vita activa and vita contempliva uh, touches quite directly, obviously, on my life and our monastic community. And uh, we've been quite blessed with vocations, and that means uh, we're taking in young men who are coming from this culture that we're talking about that uh, doesn't seem to uh, have a very settled kind of peaceful relationship with contemplation the guys are obviously after it in some way they, they want it but they're not quite sure what it is and when we tell them uh, you know now you're going to uh, clean the toilets in the guest house and then you're going to mop the basement floor and then uh, we're going to eat and uh, you know we're going to be in church seven times a day and you might have an hour for personal prayer uh, they they think, well, I've made a mistake. I thought I entered a, a contemplative community. Um, it is, and that's not just a canonical distinction. Uh, as superior, my intention is that we actually realize this traditional way of life. Uh, this debate uh, that Blakey and Jennifer describe has contemporary relevance in the Catholic Church. Uh, the last two popes are not uncommonly taken to embody this distinction. So Benedict XVI is seen as a contemplative and Francis as a man of action. And this designation hides the fact that Pope Francis as a Jesuit is an avowed contemplative in action. Right? That was Ignatius' idea uh, for his followers. And Pope Benedict, while he was a cardinal, worked for decades in the Vatican bureaucracy, uh, had to do a lot of reading, speaking, thinking about uh, whether theologians were uh, within the bounds of orthodoxy, etc. And he often lamented the fact that he couldn't live a contemplative life. <laughs> um, and I, I think his retirement, in, in a way, was uh, him finally achieving that after many years of, of service in the church. Now, in the monastic tradition, in theory at least, there is no conflict between the active life and the contemplative life. Uh, they are seen hierarchically, which is to say that the contemplative life is the goal. Uh, but that's not to say that the, the active life is only instrumental in getting to the contemplative life. It's not a series of hoops we have to get through before we get the prize at the end, uh, because the active life is about uh, ridding myself of vices, acquiring virtues, and uh, what this does then, that, that in itself is, is a life worth living, a virtuous life. And so... Uh, contemplation follows upon that, and, and I'll explain that in a moment as, as the monastic fathers have handed it on to us. Uh, so the, the active life is more like the necessary milieu in which real contemplation can take place. And so it's very interesting that oftentimes contemplation is seen as something emotional or um, about self-fulfillment or something like that, Whereas in the Christian tradition, it's a turning of myself entirely toward truth and being responsible to God, uh, to knowing God personally. 
so again, it's important to note, uh, speaking from my own experience, that we would mean something slightly different from most of the ways the active life and contemplative life are characterized in the book, which is fine. Uh, so the active life, which uh, comes from the Greek praktike, is uh, not really concerned at all with modern values like efficiency or productivity uh, or a utilitarian good. Uh, it's the work of building character, okay? So it's uprooting vices and planting virtues. And this necessarily takes place in a community. Uh, St. Benedict uh, says, you know, once, once you achieve a certain measure of virtue, then you can go and be uh, a hermit. But before that, you need the brothers to, to test you, to correct you. Uh, you need someone to serve. You, you need uh, St. Basil the Great says of the hermits, you know, uh, whose feet are you going to wash when you're out by yourself? And without this component of self-denial, we, we can't be disposed to a, a kind of appreciation of the truth which contemplation is, is beckoning us toward. I'm, I'm going to return to the importance of the common good in, in a moment. So the contemplative life, it is the opening of the mind to divine realities in the Christian tradition. Uh, the modern idea of contemplation often, again, it's, it's caricatured sometimes or even uh, spoken of positively as, as we heard a moment ago, self-knowledge and personal growth. Uh, but for us monks, the contemplative life is the life of a lover, okay? Uh, one can't make progress in the contemplative life and probably can't be properly motivated in the active life without love of God at the center and, and love of neighbor. Uh, these, this is what drew me to the monastery. It wasn't for, for uh, you know, personal no self-knowledge or something like that. That is what we hope will come of it. Uh, and I think, Lisa, you were talking about the, the sharing of an authentic self. This is what prayer is. I, I, I can't be other than myself with God because God knows me better than I know myself. And so this relationship with God does reveal me to myself, uh, but only in relationship. It's not something I do for myself. <laughs> it's something I dispose myself toward by a disciplined life of action and thought. Uh, another, the other important distinction from our perspective in, in the monastery is that contemplation implies revelation, and that's to say God personally discloses himself to humankind. Uh, and so we can actually have this relationship. We can listen to God. And we can listen to God in all aspects of life because God is the creator. So uh, the contemplative one hopes, uh, learns to read nature, uh, to read history, to read the scriptures uh, by the light of the Holy Spirit who interprets them in, in, according to truth. So, uh, the, and, and that is a really important thing too. To be a contemplative monk, you, you really have to believe in truth. You know, there's no way around that. But it's interesting to hear that part of the difficulty in contemporary culture is a kind of reticence to claim that we might have any purchase on the truth in any way. Uh, I'd like to back up a bit and, and suggest a concept that I think uh, it appears in the book in reference to the work of Matthew Crawford. Uh, the concept is craft. Uh, and I think this helps to understand the, 
helps us to understand the relationship between the active and contemplative life. Uh, it appeals to me as a former musician. You, you can't be a good musician without practicing craft. And there's just a lot of, um, Wynton Marsalis used to talk about practices. You know, it's, every day you have to get up and slay the dragon. Yeah, there's, most days practice isn't that fun, but if you're gonna be a, a musician, you have to do it. But the, the purpose isn't to become proficient at exercises. <laughs> you know, the purpose is to be able to express oneself in music. Uh, so I'm going to use a different craft, though, because uh, I talk plenty about music. I'm going to talk about accounting. Uh, the active life of an accountant uh, involves rigorous training in things like learning what credits and debits are, what assets and liabilities are, prepaid funds, restricted funds, how to interpret human action in quantifiable terms, how to prepare reports, how to uh, maintain proper files for audits. This is to say there are standards of excellence in the craft, uh, but these only become clear to the student of accounting after she has learned how to carry out many routine actions uh, internal to the craft. And at a certain point, then, the mind is freed from what maybe were misconceptions about what accounting is, uh, and, and entering into the truth of, of what accounting, what this activity is about. This is the transition from student to master, and it parallels the transition from active to contemplative practice. So at this point, the newly minted accounting professional now may begin to notice ways to characterize human behavior uh, that are more accurate than previous standards of the craft. She may realize that certain practices pose a danger to ethical standards, and so needs to reflect on how to train future accountants to spot these dangers and deal with them in a way that upholds that really important ethical part of accounting. Uh, she may also begin to see more correlations between the work of accounting and the work of management, distribution, marketing, etc. So the master accountant begins to see how her craft fits into a larger and larger perspective and see how the truth of there are these necessary correlations between things uh, in the world. And so one becomes a contemplative through this practice. Uh, I, I think, um, Professor Summit, you, you talked about being an administrator. There are, there are internal standards where you can either succeed or fail. And so, uh, and, external. And, and external, yes. And uh, this means that there's a truth to the, there, there's an, a nature to the idea of an administrator. And uh, one progresses, can become better and better at it by recognizing those standards and, and, and making one's own convictions consonant with those standards, right? So um, this is the reason that the contemplative life is traditionally characterized as higher, but it's not separate from the active life. In the, in the high middle ages, there came to be this canonical distinction between active orders like the mendicants and then the contemplative orders like the Benedictines. But the earlier, the first millennium, there was no such distinction. And uh, I, I wish there still weren't, <laughs> frankly. Um, I don't think it, it works very well uh, in, in, in Catholic discipline. Uh, contemplation makes possible the perception of necessary connections between crafts, how to understand their contributions to the common good. And this is, again, right out of Plato and Aristotle. You know, you make a saddle, 
uh, somebody else knows how to train a horse, somebody else knows how to ride a horse in a battle, and someone else is a general who can see how to win a battle. And that's politics now, right? So it all flows into this common life that we have in service of our city state or our monastery, our neighborhood, whatever it is, our university, and so on. So contemplation is really necessary to make all these connections and understand how my role fits into this common project. Uh, but again, the, the understanding and wisdom that we're looking for is only available after this apprenticeship in a disciplined activity. Uh, so, a couple of other observations on, on reading the book. Uh, I've already mentioned that uh, contemplation from the monastic perspective presupposes that truth can be known, but it's really important to understand that because God is truth and God is a mystery, God can never be known fully. Uh, God is always infinitely more unknown to us than he is known. Uh, Contemplation is a really important antidote to a kind of creeping theological totalism that, you know, we, uh, many people are attracted to the Catholic faith because we have answers to every question that's ever been asked. And uh, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but that's only, again, sort of at the level of apprenticeship. It's not really knowing God yet. It's getting there. It's, it's maybe having a first date or something like that. Uh, Contemplation is not, in our tradition, about emotion. It, it integrates it, but it depends actually on uh, a, a controversial concept that I, I personally think shouldn't be too controversial. Uh, it's called apatheia. And uh, this is uh, not reacting out of emotion, not reacting out of fear, anger, or, as I warn brothers oftentimes, uh, over-eagerness, you know, enthusiasm. That also can have um, impractical consequences, let's say. The public-private split that's mentioned uh, in, in that takes up one of the chapters is, is actually a challenge for us in the monastery because monks, again, coming into the monastery easily conflate the cell uh, where, where we sleep and, and do, and, uh, do Lectio Divina, pray, uh, confusing this with a bedroom. Uh, so there's, there's a different idea of privacy that's about me having my own space, but in fact the cell is a place where I go to be with God. So it is private in one sense, but it's not about me only. It's, it, it's about this relationship. Uh, a final observation about gender. Uh, so I think there's something that's come up in recent Catholic tradition that I consider more fruitful than uh, what's become the somewhat tiresome Mary-Martha debate. Uh, Pope John Paul II was fond of saying that the Marian dimension of the church takes precedence over the Petrine. Uh, he didn't coin that phrase, but uh, he, he uh, I think, believed it, and it was important for him to say it as Pope. And what is meant by that, again, is the life of mystical prayer, the life of the liturgy, uh, of being able to read the sacramental signs and enter into God's mysterious presence, that's more important than the, the, the practical work of the clergy, the, uh, the work of canon lawyers and so on. Not that that is dispensable in any way, uh, but, but they're related in this similar fashion that the, the clergy, the hierarchy, occupies a kind of active life but the, the goal for everyone is the, to be modeled by Mary, 
the, the mother of God. And, and so, and there's, there's generally, I think, good reason to think that uh, this feminine exemplar is uh, well suited to model for us the contemplative life. Um, and uh, so I, I, I think I will stop there. I just want to end by saying I, I really, again, applaud the, the desire to integrate these uh, two ways of life, and I hope that Christian monasticism can contribute something to that integration. Thank you. First, thank you um, for these very, very thoughtful, very thoughtful engagements with the book. And the, you know, this is precisely, I think, what the, the, the best that we could outcome that we could hope, which is that it spurs this level of deep engagement. Um, and as Blakey says, it is a question that opens up to sort of like a lotus to more and more um, um, levels of understanding and, and as you've both just shown. Um, you know, I, I think that the, 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 you know, one of the comments that I want to make is um, actually about literary theory as a, as, as a practitioner and I want to thank you. Um, this is a, a personal observation that um, I was in graduate school during the, the high days of, of theory, and I was actually at Johns Hopkins, which is where a lot of theory um, both was uh, midwifed um, and also uh, found found a home. You know, and 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 I'll say, sort of speaking speaking personally, it was a very peculiar time to be a graduate student, but I found the critique of the. Um, Cartesian self to be actually very helpful to my own eventual practice both as a contemplative but also as an administrator and I'll give you an example of why I, I think that the as an administrator um, you know I'll quote one of the deans who re reports to me who's just wonderful at his job and he said we were, he was making an observation of when when administrators falter um, and when they do it can be so visible um, uh, but he said you know almost without without exception when he sees administrators falter it's because they're leading from a place of ego mm -hmm. and that when we when we lead from a place of ego then we are making our decisions for the wrong reason and they will have and we're also making them from a place that cannot be satisfied from the situation in which we're making the decision you know it's coming from a place of self-defensiveness or self-aggrandizement you know of course anyone who thinks that they can achieve any power or authority as an administrator too is you know bound down to to be gravely disappointed and that's another form of sort of the the impossibility of of, of seeking to satisfy the ego um, from these from these positions so I think that that's that's what leads me to think that you know, my own experience of administration is actually much closer, I think, to the, the Benedictine model, which I, I so appreciate that, um, um, uh, that model, because it's very much true that the virtue 
which I think is one of these words that we mustn't be afraid to say, the virtue that you can cultivate within a disciplined, active life creates the milieu in which contemplation can happen, but is also informed by, I think, the fruit of contemplation, which is love. And when um, I find when I'm successful as an administrator, when I can step away and think that was well done, um, it's because it's coming from a place of love and not from a place of not from a place of ego. Mm -hmm. So, thank you both for reading the book and taking it on. I'm enormously grateful to both of you for your, for your comments. I think that one thing that academics often won't admit to is that we're just muddling through and trying to have a sense of contours of a, a sort of a, an ideological situation or formation that um, we really can't see very clearly. I, I tend to think of humanists as um, actually very far-sighted people in, in a way that we're very good at uh, um, d diagnosing things. Um, maybe what we don't do so well is diagnose our own um, internal contradictions. One of the one of the things that I think about a lot is in the realm of elite higher education, we are often pushing an ideology. To be brutally frank, I think we, we sell things. And one of the things that we sell, to put the matter very crudely, is the idea that if you come to a place like the University of Chicago or Stanford, that you will be able to achieve something like a more meaningful life, mm -hmm. that, that, that putting yourself on this track will help you uh, find a purpose and find meaning in, in your life. I think this is an, an important part of our pitch to parents and to students. Mm -hmm. Uh, in other words, why would you put yourself through the, the paces of being a very, very well-bred, thoroughbred uh, racehorse from, from babyhood uh, to, to get into one of these places if it wasn't in some sense going to result in having a life that was rich in, in meaning? I'm increasingly perturbed by this aspect of our pitch, especially when I hear students tell me that what they want is to have an impact or to, yeah. to make a difference or to have an impact. Because it turns out, of course, that, that having an impact is, is very difficult. Um, and it, it's just as likely that the impact that you have is going to be bad as good. Um, I uh, take the example of Mark Zuckerberg. You found a, a software firm in your dorm room in 2006, and 10 years later, it turns out to be the platform by which um, Vladimir Putin hacks the election. Impact good, impact bad, you decide. Um, 
it's, it's hard to know what your impact is going to be. Uh, and, and the likelihood is that your, their actions might have negative consequences, especially if, you, if, if your idea is that you're going to ground them in our own contemporary master values, which are basically freedom, autonomy, personal success, and infinite consumer choice, instead of where, where I think that meaning and purpose actually comes from, which is mm -hmm. local connections, very mm -hmm. local connections, often extremely local connections. So I have a little slogan that I use sometimes for myself, which is the more local, the more meaningful. My sense of where meaning in life comes from is not from personal success or radical freedom or autonomy, but really from uh, digging into a very local culture, as you say, and just trying to make it better day in and day out. And that practice, often reiterated over decades, is what is going to give meaning and a sense of purpose to life. And so to the extent that we to the extent that we try to convince young people and their families that uh, freedom and personal success is a, source of, uh, is a source of great value, I think we're actually doing a disservice to the, the people that we mm. tend to. So that's interesting. I'd like to respond, Blakey, to your comments. And, and, and um, I think that the, as somebody who's, who's come from elite higher education into uh, uh, the non-elite. Um, I'll also say that you've captured beautifully, I think, to me, the, the real fulfillment of the work that my colleagues and I see us performing at a regional comprehensive university, which is that um, a third of our students are first generation, a third are Pell eligible, and they are driven by the goal of giving back to their communities. But it's that, that local connection um, that um, we are the University of San, Fr San Francisco, we are San Francisco's university, and our, our commitment is to that city and its needs and its people. And I think that um, there are many things that I took from benefits that I took from the elite uh, higher ed the, for which I'm always grateful. Um, I think there are a lot that of lessons and much wisdom from the non-elite sector that from which the elite would really benefit. Do you have any uh, further responses? Um, Sure, yeah. sure. Um, uh, Jennifer, your, your comment makes me think that I uh, should have or could have had I had more time, but it's important to distinguish different versions of, uh, different meanings of the word ego. Mm. Um, mm. So uh, my own secondary field of expertise, interdisciplinary expertise mm -hmm. is psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of uh, self-involvement, self-engrossment, sense of how you're coming across that you're describing as ego, a psychoanalyst would describe as defensive ego functioning. Mm -hmm. that, that's vanity, mm -hmm. but that's different from ego functioning, which is what helps us to keep a promise or regulate our aggression. Mm -hmm. um, and these issues were very 
beautifully clarified for me in an anthology of essays edited by Jeremy Safran on Buddhism and psychoanalysis, because there's, within Buddhism, there's the whole idea of the non-self, but this is quite different from the Derridian uh, idea of the non-self. And even within Lacanian theory, practicing Lacanian analysts often diverge from uh, contemporary academic Lacanians in thinking that psychotics actually need more ego functioning. Mm -hmm. I'm quoting Bruce Spink here. And it just means more ability to know and regulate and somehow coordinate and synthesize your, your own, mm. your own mm. feelings. But I, I completely agree that there's a, that, that especially in our culture, a certain kind of a grandiosity or um, uh, self-engrossment is, uh, is encouraged and we have to do what we can to cut against that. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's right. Um, maybe just a word about uh, the idea of the self. Um, the, a, a theme that ran through the book that I, I was uh, picking up was how modern persons tend to occupy roles that are not easily uh, integrated with one another. And this is a theme that, that I've run into in a number of places. Um, and it's interesting that uh, the, the, the word monk itself probably comes uh, from monos, uh, that, uh, meaning an integrated life, that, that one is attempting to rid oneself of those internal contradictions, which is uh, not easy, but, but it's hard to do when, when one doesn't have any time at all to reflect. Uh, and uh, um, our monastic tradition doesn't exactly have the practice of an examination of conscience, but I urge the younger brothers to learn it because uh, what I find is that uh, the same mistakes take them by surprise sort of, uh, day after day after day, and then they, they get kind of depressed about it or think they don't have a vocation. But it seems to me what happens is uh, that, that time to reflect on whether I mean, I think you put it very well, whether I'm acting, whether I can stand behind what I say, whether um, I can stand behind what I do. Uh, and in a monastery, it's kind of a pressure cooker that way, especially a small monastery. Uh, we, we can't escape each other very easily. And so if you have a conflict with somebody in the community, you can't hide very well from him. Uh, you're going to sit next to him at recreation or uh, inquire, <laughs> and um, and this this these sorts of activities uh, force on us a reckoning with whether or not I'm actually living the life I, I professed. I mean, we also make solemn vows before God to be converted to a life of charity, and uh, uh, but coming from a place again where the self is so often diced up into uh, you know different types of relationships with uh, and I think again I, I, I'll mention this I, I've been reading uh, this book the Benedict option um, because many of our oblates so they're lay people uh, who are associated with our monastery they want to do something with us it's like the Benedict option and sort of fleeing the empire to uh, start local communities uh, where Christian values can be protected and so on um, I have misgivings about some of the theory in the book, but I, I think that the basic idea is good. And um, the, the, the 
the problem is uh, so much of the discussion goes on on the internet with people I have no bodily connection to. Like I can't, I can't sense that person's presence. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, all person's uh, bodily presences are, are attractive in certain ways and, and problematic in certain ways. And learning to negotiate that uh, is, is so important to have any kind of meaningful discussion about values. Uh, and um, so I find many people who are really enthusiastic about this Benedict option kind of shoot themselves in the foot because they do all their writing and blogs and things like this and have these discussions with people they haven't met. <laughs> uh, and and uh, that, not that that's all bad, but it, it reinforces this sense that myself is, is broken into all these pieces uh, and uh, I, I can always escape uncomfortable questions by associating with the right sorts of people who won't ask them of <laughs> me, you know. So that's just some thoughts.